0: to the 292nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. Today, I welcome Colleen Durkacz, author of Bounding Biomedicine, Evidence and Rhetoric in the New Science of Alternative Medicine. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. So today, June 17th, 2021, there are 3,834,719 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, the death toll has now moved above 600,000. The United States reporting 600,656 deaths from COVID-19. In Canada, 26,001 lives have been lost from the disease. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline is Gone But Not Forgotten, Colleagues Honor a Beloved Orderly. And this appeared in the staff newsletter of the Integrated Health and Social Services University Network for West Central Montreal. This appeared November 25th, 2020. Ezra Jeffrey was an orderly who gave to others before he took for himself. He always brought an extra coffee for a colleague. He shared his lunch if someone forgot theirs. And at the annual holiday party, he made a point of dancing with the residents and making them laugh. So when the coronavirus struck, Last spring, the 71-year-old employee at the St. Margaret Residential Center did what came naturally. Rather than retire, which he could have done, he stayed on to help others, until suddenly he needed help himself. One day in 2020, after tending to a resident, Mr. Jeffrey became ill. He lost his appetite, felt listless, and went home. Five weeks later, Mr. Jeffrey was gone. He had succumbed to COVID-19. My father was a hero, says his daughter, Amy Jeffrey. He knew the risks, but he told me he wanted to be there during the crisis to help as much as he could. His work and always looked out for Mr. Jeffrey's death devastated his co workers at the medical center in West, Century Montreal, West Central Montreal. Over the years, he had earned loyalty of managers and staff at St. Margaret's for his kindness and devotion. They insisted that he be remembered. Hey, everyone who walks into the senior's residence on Hillside Avenue in Westmount will be reminded of Mr. Jeffrey. Right inside the main lobby, a sign hangs over a set of double doors, Ezra P. Jeffrey Staff Lounge. Next to it is a plaque bearing Mr. Jeffrey's photo. In loving memory of our PAB, which means beneficiary attendant. It reads His dedication, conviction, and beautiful smile during his 14 years of service will always remain and forever be a part of St. Margaret's. The tributes were unveiled at a ceremony June 17th of last year. Everyone wore black armbands pinned with a little rainbow. Staff had taken up a collection for Mr. Jeffrey's family and gave them a binder filled with testimonials written on index cards. The words described a man whose character showed in small daily gestures said Lucy Ann Ferguson, a colleague and friend at St. Margaret's. She remembered that Mr. Jeffrey checked in on her daily when she was sick and he insisted on driving co-workers home or to the metro if they needed a lift. Vicki Doucette, nurse manager at St. Margaret's, remembers finding her car cleared of snow in the winter. Relatedly, she found out that Mr. Jeffrey was quietly going out to do it. He was a sweetheart. He was like everybody's dad, Miss <clears throat> Doucette says. Excuse me. His death was an awakening. It showed how precious life is. Staff say his passing also underscores the sacrifice of healthcare workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. He was a fallen soldier, says recreation therapist Wendy Foster, who organized the tribute to Mr. Jeffrey with Mr. Dusset and Miss Ferguson. We really are and were in a war that nobody signed up for. We were conscripted and it cost a life. Dr. Lawrence Rosenberg, president and CEO of DIUSSS, wrote a letter of condolence to Mr. Jeffrey's family. In it, he praised Mr. Jeffrey's conscientious and compassionate care for residents. His great desire to help others, the mark of a truly dedicated healthcare worker, was evident in his determination to be of service, even though he could have taken a full and well-deserved retirement, he wrote. The homages offered some solace to Mr. Jeffrey's stricken family. Calls also came in from the families of residents, some as far away as Ontario. It shows the impact that my dad had on his co-workers, on residents, and on the whole establishment, says Miss Jeffrey, and that leaves a warm place in my heart. <clears throat> okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Colleen durkacz Colleen is Associate Professor of Rhetoric in the Department of English at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. Her research focuses on rhetoric of health and medicine, particularly regarding the intersections between different understandings of and approaches to health and healthcare. Colleen, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So just as we start, a brief program note, I've had a couple of internet slowdowns, um, and so if we do have a little bit of a, of a lag or slowdown, don't don't worry. I think that it'll it'll sort itself out. Thank you in advance for putting up with any of that. Um, let me start the way I usually do, just uh, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic's looking like there today.
1: Okay, so I'm calling from Toronto in the Canadian province of Ontario, um, and Toronto is built upon the traditional lands of many First Nations, including the Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Bay, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Toronto is Canada's largest biggest city, and so that's where I'm calling from. And how the pandemic is looking today? It's it's looking pretty good, actually. I think um, it's been on a, a, an upswing. Sort of we're we're on the the. Dip, pretty far downhill of the third wave um, that we had in Ontario. Um, So today, so Ontario um, for reference has about four and a half million people, or 14 and a half, sorry, million people. So 14 and a half million people. Today we had 370 new cases um, and seven deaths. And the deaths um, are significant partly because two of those were under 60, so so COVID is affecting younger populations, but um, we were um, At the crest of the the third wave, we were around 4,000 cases a day. So so 370 is actually pretty good. Um, We have uh, about 4,400 active cases in the province um, and 400 of those cases are in hospital. Good news on the vaccination front as well, so in Ontario right now, 74% of the population over the age of 12 has had one or more doses of, of the vaccine, and 18% of the population has had two doses now, so, um, and I'm calling you as someone who just got her second vaccination last week, so, um, the Delta variant is growing in parts of the province, so that is becoming sort of the chief concern at this moment. Um, it's spreading um, particularly in in northern regions um, among unvaccinated adults and also among children who are not yet eligible for vaccines. So that's where we're at today.
0: Uh, I'm glad you had the second dose. Thank you for sharing that. Could you tell me again, what was the, the percentage of people who've had uh, the, the second dose?
1: Uh, 18% has had two doses 18, okay. um, Canada um, across Canada um, we went with a first dose for well, there was a, a phrase they were using it's the first dose first I think strategy of mm-hmm. rather than doing the two doses in a shorter interval getting as many people um, vaccinated with their sh- first shots as possible um, was the strategy and so they initially recommended a, a four month gap between doses. So that was far more than adopted elsewhere. Um, and then they've been shrinking the gap slowly. So I got my first shot, um, in March actually. And so wow, I got okay. mine at 12 weeks. Um, but now they've moved that window. I was one of the AstraZeneca people in Canada. Mm, um, mm. there was like a brief win- window, um, all the Gen X people got AstraZeneca um, they opened it up to, to Gen Xers. And so we dutifully got our AstraZeneca shots and then they, cut it off. <laughs> so It's the most Gen X thing
0: I can, as a fellow Gen X, I could say that's that's totally classic for us.
1: It is the classic Gen X, like like every step of the way from, from um, us going out and getting our shots and not being recognized for it, to the shots being cut off. And now um, we're in a really funny place um, in Ontario, uh, across Canada, because um, AstraZeneca is no longer being given as a first shot. It is being given as a second shot um to people who got it as a first shot but in all of the information that's being given out it's really being given out to people who got one of the mnra um vaccines so uh, moderna and pfizer are the two that are are licensed here authorized for use here and so the astrazeneca's are just we're stuck kind of nowhere all the time and so yeah it is very true to type for gen x
0: the first person i've heard bring that kind of analysis um, to talking about the vaccination, but it makes it makes perfect sense. And thanks for going into that that detail about the vaccination um, process in Canada. I think we'll return to that, particularly around the health messaging piece. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask another question just about this pandemic okay. period. For you, um, what's your strongest memory or association of this of this time? Uh, taking into account that it may not be one thing, but um, if you wouldn't mind sharing one.
1: Hmm. I have a few Um, I think when I think back um, you know in the early days um, just how weird and scary it was and we you know we didn't know what was coming and and in the province of Ontario um, we were first advised um, in March of 2020 you know we'll shut schools for three weeks and it seemed like we might just kind of go back to normal and and one thing that really sticks out for me is just that kind of very it was such a blurry time of you know everyone kind of collectively being on kind of the same page, um, if you will, reading the same news articles, talking about what it might mean. Um, And what I thought was really interesting there was how policymakers and scientists really rose to the kind of the fora, and we began to look to them as oracles. And I think that that really stuck out for me because um, I imagine we'll talk about this in a little bit, but in my first book, um, I talked about public attitudes towards science and scientists and how there can be kind of a certain level of um, skepticism or, you know, scientists are typically perceived as being so far apart from culture. And suddenly all of these figures became sort of, well, like oracles really, where people were really looking to them to figure out like what will happen to us in the future. Um, And so I found it, you know, I mean that the devastation of course notwithstanding because of course that is the most significant thing coming out of out of sort of maybe the tail end of the pandemic um, but beyond that i thought it was such an interesting cultural moment to look at how people adapted to this moment to look at how you know for me as a language theorist seeing how people started using epidemiological language in their everyday lives and so watching Terms like social distancing creep into the vernacular, and terms like herd immunity and these other terms that, um, you know, were widespread maybe in my world, um, but weren't so broadly um, spread out in the culture. So I thought that that was really interesting. And now we've reached this point of um, almost like cultural sa- saturation in some ways of experts, so infectious disease experts, epidemiologists, public health authorities. You know, people who often um, who often are um, behind the scenes suddenly came to the fore and now you know there's nicknames for different different professionals and so I think that that's really interesting um, one of the public office, officers of health in Canada her name's um, dr. Bonnie Henry and people now call her DBH for example and so that's something that really sticks out is d- how we've become kind of saturated um, in this really interesting way
0: that that last detail is interesting and I'm in South Korea now and they have a um uh, a public health official who became this sort of like, and you've even heard people use the Americans use this term, United States residents use this term, say, um, oh, he or she is the Tony Fauci of whatever country, yeah. as sort of this like stand in figure for like a, a public health researcher, a scientist who becomes a public health communicator, who then becomes a really a rock star. Um,
1: it's, it's so fascinating. And so the case of Bonnie Henry is really interesting, um, because she was quite prominent in, um, SARS in Toronto. Um, (laughs) I can't remember exactly what her role was, but when, when Toronto, um, I almost said came down with SARS, Uh, but when when, uh, SARS was in Toronto, she was a main figure. Um, And I spent a good part of the winter in uh, the province where she's now the medical officer of health um, in British Columbia on the West Coast. And you would see little signs outside stores that would have like little um, cartoons of her, like hand-drawn sort of. I would say caricature, except they were like loving images um, and quotes for her. Cause she's well-known for saying uh, be safe and be kind. And there was a third thing. I don't remember what she says, but, but so, you know, it, it's one of those things that, you know, she's not the Fauci of Canada because she's um, it's, I don't want to say she's motherly because I think that's too highly gendered, but there's this, this level of affection that I think is Mm -hmm. really interesting that, you know, when could you ever name a medical officer of health before? Right. Right. Exactly.
0: When these become household household names, I I want to, before we talk about um, COVID-19, I'd like to get a little bit of background about your first book, bounding biomedicine Mm -hmm. evidence and rhetoric in the new science of alternative medicine. maybe you can tell us a little bit about the project and then maybe how you see that project differently or how you see it now back through the prism of COVID-19.
1: Um, yeah, it's uh, so the, the key question basically that undergirds that book is, um, I, well, I came to it with the question of how do certain health practices and practitioners come to and maintain ascendancy over others? And so here I'm thinking about uh, the long history in professional medicine, particularly in North in uh, Canada, in the U.S. and in the U.K., um, the professionalization of um, medicine started beginning in the mid 19th century. Um, you know, with the emergence of the American Medical Association, for example, um, and issues of professional competition, professional organizations. Because in the early days of medicine, doctors really competed in a medical marketplace with, like, bloodletters and midwives and other figures. Um, and so, over time, I was interested in in what were the rhetorical or discursive or persuasive processes that shaped sort of the the um, the firming up of um, biomedicine as we now know it as sort of the dominant medical paradigm, Um, as I worked on that project, I came to really see that that one of the key um, factors in in the rhetorical negotiation of boundaries between different health practices is the idea of evidence. And so when I say um, different health practices, I mean, particularly for this book, um, mainstream biomedicine in relation to practices such as acupuncture or chiropractic or um, dietary supplements, uh, natural health products. And so the book itself is mobilized by one by a key question. And the question is, and I actually just stated in the introduction, um, the question is: how does the notion of evidence determine the boundaries of biomedicine from expert to public contexts? And so what I do in the book, I think there's maybe five chapters, and I, I basically move from Um, what in science studies and other fields is called upstream upstream science. So how science is practiced by experts. And I track that all the way down to science downstream, how it's practiced um, and how it circulates in public culture. And so I look at, for example, um, how are clinical trials of practices such as acupuncture and chiropractic, how are they designed? How are those trials interpreted? How are they shared in the literature and how are they um, accepted as evidence? And how are these trials applied in practice? So if a patient goes to see their family doctor and they're asking about acupuncture, um, what does the doctor say? Where does that, um, where did, what is the basis of what they say? Where does that come from? And then how are scientific studies of alternative health practices reported in the public? So that's kind of an overview and I use um, as a case study um, or sort of a landmark is I look at a set of theme issues from the American, the journals of the American Medical Association. And so um, at the time there were ten journals in all. Um, the number has fluctuated over years, but there's the the land the flat sorry the flagship journal, um, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and then there were um, nine or so. Um, associated journals that were specialty journals. So archives of family medicine, archives of psychiatry, archives of, um, you name the medical specialty, it's represented there. And in 1998, they put out a set of coordinated coordinated theme issues on the topic of alternative medicine. And so I used those theme issues as an example of, um, an instance where a professional medical uh, association through its publication arm, tried to come to reckon with the rising tide of patients seeking health outside of the mainstream system Um, because the 1990s was a period where there was really an explosion of interest in alternative health practices. So it's just kind of an interesting site to see how these boundaries are sort of formed and reformed um, and how is the idea of evidence mobilized in these discussions.
0: it sounds and, like a wonderful project. I just want and so um, I wonder if you then could track for us a little bit alternative medicine and those discourses that you were just, just explaining around evidence and how they're finding themselves in journals and this this kind of process. How's that playing out in the in the pandemic? I mean, you must have been the minute the pandemic broke out, you must have been very finely attuned to watching those those discourses as they emerged.
1: It's interesting because I've been, I, I kind of had, you know, two different hats on at the same time because the, the, you know, I'm a humanities-based health researcher. Um, so of course it was just a field day for me, but I was also a human being trying to live during a global pandemic as, a, you know, a parent, as just a person trying to know what to expect next. And like, everyone else. I was scared about what the future would look like. So that was really interesting to kind of always have these two narratives running in my head at the same time, because I would read a news article, and I would freak out and also be thinking, hmm, that's very interesting. Um so, so that was really interesting. Um, one of the things I found in the book um, was that the idea of, of what counts as evidence in biomedicine is quite elastic, and it get the idea of evidence gets mobilized differently in different contexts, even among um, experts. And so. Um, that idea of evidence can be harder or softer depending on um, what we're talking about. And this was interesting during um, the pandemic as, as we started to think about um, what kind of evidence was there for um, whether and how the pandemic was spreading, um, how the virus was transmitted, how um, whether and how different treatments worked. Um, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to alternative medicine itself in this moment. Um, I've also, during the pandemic, had my head down writing another book. And so, um, but, but but one thing I really um, noticed was how um, the contingent nature of scientific knowledge um, is totally normal within the realm of science and scientists, right? Like it's totally, it, it, it's uncontroversial to say within the scientific community that, you know this is what we know right now in this particular study with these variables but we don't really know all this other stuff. But that those kinds of statements don't fly in the public realm as easily, right? That's, it's, it's quite challenging um, to talk about um, contingency in a public realm where we do you know journalistic conventions expect you know declarative um, sentences declarative knowledge and so that was one thing that really stuck out for me also the sort of the ease with which we began to be able to talk about uncertainty I feel like we were more uncomfortable with uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic you know as a as a collective as a public and I think that Over the year, we've become a lot more used to that idea of uncertainty. So I don't think, um, you know, at least speaking for myself in Toronto, in Canada, um, my sense is that people don't freak out quite as much um, when scientific knowledge changes. Um, Like I noticed just today um, that the national, I can't remember what it is. Its acronym is NACI. It's our um, Canadian Advisory Council for on immunization. Actually, that's what it is: the National Advisory Council on Immunization, or NACI. Um, just today, they changed their guidelines again about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Where now they're recommending that it not even be used as a second shot anymore. Um, and so their guidance has changed. You know, maybe every month or so, um, and. I think people are becoming collectively a little bit more comfortable that we just know more. Um, So that's one of the main things Mm. that has really stuck out for me. With respect to alternative medicine during the pandemic, um, I think that there's much more of the same in a lot of ways some things have changed, though, um, because I think you know you see the same kind of disinformation machine grinding along, um, you know, in YouTube videos with um, folk cures for various ailments. Um, but I think there's also been a bit of a shift um, where people I never would have thought would get, for example, a COVID vaccine. People I know who didn't vaccinate their children that are deeply invested in natural health care and natural health products are getting vaccinated. And that's mm. been really interesting to see. Um, and uh, related to that is um, I'm not on Facebook, but I kind of, you know, I see conversations out of the corner of my eye on my husband's um, devices. Uh, and I'm also seeing um, sort of self-correction among Groups in, like for example, Facebook comment threads, and that's been interesting to see as well. Um, so, kind of the tenor of debate has shifted a little bit, um, and I think that um, maybe while there was a little bit of, I don't know, I I, I end my uh, I end bounding biomedicine by talking about sort of a, an ambivalence that runs through um, American and Canadian culture about science and scientists and and. I think that that ambivalence has been attenuated just a little bit. Hmm. I think we're a little more excited about science, maybe.
0: It's, it's so many interesting things in what you're describing there. One of which I hadn't heard anyone articulate up to now, which is um, that there may be communities who uh, align themselves with what you might call natural medicine, who also might be um, vaccine skeptical or maybe even considered anti-vax, and... Um, and who have then adopted the COVID nineteen mm-hmm. vaccine? Who've who've then put that aside and gone ahead and had themselves or their family members vaccinated? Is that anecdotal for for you, or what do you what do you think about mm-hmm. that? That's kind of a stunning observation, actually. I haven't heard anyone yeah. talk about that.
1: I mean, for me, it's anecdotal. I haven't seen any you know hard evidence that this is widespread, but I think that I mean it kind of makes sense. Like if you think about. Um, sort of the rhetorical situation of vaccines and vaccination. It's, it's actually a really tough case um, because what you're doing is you're trying to promote an intervention that if it's effective will do nothing, right? And that's a hard sell. That's not like here, take this miracle pill and you'll feel all better and you'll like notice it dramatically. You know, you will be able to find it on a scan or in a blood test. Like literally when it works, You don't know that it works. Um, And I think um, as so many communicable diseases were reduced or eliminated by vaccines, um, it sort of created an environment where it was sort of easier to question whether they were all that necessary, right? Um, Because people have, and I think people have good reasons to be concerned about pharmaceuticals and the pharmaceutical industry in, in some ways. Um, they have good reason to be concerned about toxins in their environments, etc. And those things tend to constellate into concerns about uh, products we put in our bodies. And so um, when it doesn't seem like there's a looming threat and you feel like everyday life has become, you know, too... Um, what I want to say chemically interfered, but that's not what I want to say. Uh, But you know, there with too many chemicals in our lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Then you might reasonably assume that, oh, vaccines aren't that important. But what we're seeing right now is the real time effectiveness of vaccines and how they work in populations. Right, right? like in Ontario, the drop we've had in COVID cases from the peak of the third wave to right now is absolutely astonishing. Um, And it can be linked to the prevalence of vaccines. And so it's really showing in real time that vaccines do work. Um, And then related to that is um, that vaccines are really our main ticket out of the pandemic. And so I think the stakes have really changed. And when you're dealing in the realm of argument and when you're dealing in the realm of persuasion, um, different evidence is differently persuasive at different times. And so I think in this case, um, even if all the other factors remain the same, suddenly that, that sort of immediacy or the presence of a of, of viral pathogen can actually shift the whole discussion and can actually, I think, help change people's minds. Um, so I'll be really interested to see um, how that, whether and how that bears out, you know, in data down the road. Um, but I think it's, it's a really Interesting and exciting um, for the study of persuasion and for the study of you know rhetoric and health of health and medicine, as well as vaccine hesitance. I think as well,
0: it, it really is. And, and just to come back, to something you said a minute ago, just about um, uncertainty playing out in real time. And I, I've gone back and forth on how I think about this. And I'll be looking forward to you know reading what your scholars like yourself and others sort of tell us as you've had more time to sift through. Um, you know, what happened over the last 18 months, but, you know, the amount of just health communication and science communication that's been on the front page of every newspaper and every news organization around the world now, so much that we've gotten used to it, that's really strange, first of all. I mean, that amount of saturation of public discussion of science and public angry debate about science, which Mm -hmm. is scary. It can be irritating to those like myself who might have a predilection towards giving experts and scientists the benefit of the doubt in this kind of moment or, you know, people like ourselves who know that science doesn't go from one, two, three, four to the final answer as quickly as the public might usually think, it's, it's exciting to watch. I found it exciting to watch that play out in real time. Maybe my bar, you know, as an American, maybe my bar is l- too low. I don't I don't know. You know, they have people arguing about science in public. It's like, I'll take that, you yeah. know, because to me, at least that means the discussion is happening. And the debate over, you know, the president, the former president of the United States using his bully pulpit to try to discredit science that worked with a subset of the population. But with a much larger subset of the population, people said, no. Uh, you know, they, they were able, people were able to watch that happen and, and sort of make some judgments for themselves. I found that really interesting. Again, maybe my bar is too low for uh, what counts mm-hmm. as valuable public discourse around science. But um, what I hear you, you saying, I think resonates a little bit here too. I mean, it's just been really fascinating and I think quite important to see it play out this way. In a way, in my lifetime, we've never, I've never seen these kind of discussions happening in on an ongoing basis day by day.
1: And I think that um, related to that um, is I think that there's been an increase in nuance in the ways that we talk about fears people have, because I think um, when it comes, for example, to vaccine hesitance, I have I have pretty much unlimited patience for people who are concerned about vaccines, Um, because I think that um, underneath, if we if we really dig at um, what people are concerned at about, um, and it may be based on mistaken information, um, and it may be just deliberately misleading information. But if you dig underneath that, typically you find good people with good reasons trying to do the right thing, um, and then. Um, it's it's how we're making decisions and what evidence we weigh and um, all those factors really become really important. And so I, I've been I've been noticing um, a shift in tone, for example, around people who are um, concerned about vaccines because there's been a real effort to reach out to. Um, to people and to recognize that it's okay to feel scared. It's okay to feel hesitant. It's, it's okay to wonder what's in the products that are being put in your body. Um, and so it's, yeah, I, I found that there's just been a level of nuance that I think is really interesting. Um, and I've had lots of conversations myself. I've been, you know, a person that friends have texted and say like, okay, so can you explain why, for example, these vaccines were produced so quickly, right? right? Because I think that's something that, um, you know, to someone who isn't versed in the nature of scientific research, it seems like worryingly fast, right? And I think that for um, for scientists, for health professionals, policymakers, etc., it's just like, it makes sense that they were, the vaccines were produced so fast. Um, but for someone who, you know, has this understanding that scientific research is really slow and takes forever, um, it could be really quite concerning. And so if you engage with Um, people where they are, rather than where you think they should be, you're going to have different results. And I I think that that's something that's, as um, vaccines have come to market and, and are being distributed, I've seen a shift in the way those conversations are unfolding in a way that I think is really great, because I think it's increasingly experts and policymakers are meeting people where they are.
0: a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Colleen Durkacz today on COVID Calls. And I want to just, I'm going to stay with this a minute because I found an article from last year in which you were quoted talking about the um, public health communication situation in Canada. And you used a phrase which I had not seen before. Um, You called for epistemic humility among Canadian officials. I, that really jumped off the page to me. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that term and what provoked you to sort of uh, call for that.
1: Well, it's not original to me. It's not my term. I actually cannot remember where it comes from, but it comes from the science studies literature. I know that much. I know it one of our from One from of our, our the...
0: listeners will tell us, no doubt. It's okay. fine.
1: <laughs> I look forward to being called out on this. Um, it's not my term, but it refers to really being humble about what you know um and don't know um being aware of the limits of your knowledge and this is really one of the kind of founding principles within science is is to be very aware of you know in any given context what are the limits of what you know um about the knowledge you've produced and um i mean it's really this is again it's so interesting from a rhetorical perspective because as You know, we've all collectively been so deeply concerned um, over the last year as um, the pandemic has unfolded. Um, Experts who previously were like backstage, really most of the time, policymakers, public health scholars, um, infectious disease doctors, you know, who typically are, you know, just, working in hospitals and in labs and are not typically um, on newscasts and on Twitter, suddenly they were thrown into the fore, you know, and, and people were looking desperately to them to inf- for information. Um, and it hasn't always been a smooth transition. Um, and I think that that is something that is important. Um, experts in a given scientific specialty typically are not experts, for example, in science communication. And that's been, you know, a challenge. So it's been wonderful to see um, different figures, you know, in the media, talking to the public, engaging on Twitter. But there has at times been a a lack of self-consciousness about um, what these individuals are able to um, weigh in on with sort of a deep understanding. And, um, you know, communication obviously is a bit of a a sore spot for me um, because that is what I do. And there are experts in, you know, in fact, I would say I'm not an expert in health communication because I think there are others who are far more expert than even I am. Um, And I think that that's been, you know, the assumption that um, because you know words and can talk and have a platform that somehow you are in a, a particular position to be communicating with the public um, is challenging, I think, Um, and so there are, I've seen some instances where um, individuals who are expert in one particular area relevant to the pandemic just suddenly start kind of weighing in on everything Mm -hmm. and and then you watch, you know, in my my local city there are a range of experts who um, have over this process gotten blue check marks on Twitter and um, have become really prominent public figures But I can tell when they've said something, um, even without seeing their feed, because you just see kind of the reverberations through, you know, social media um, about whatever they've said. And and oftentimes it's not things that they're expert about. They're just kind of weighing in because they feel like it. Um, And so so the idea of epistemic humility there is just really becoming aware of the limits of of your knowledge. And so. Um, for me, I take it personally sometimes because often it's in the realm of, of um, well here's an example. so um, once I was part of a group of um, a group of scholars that met to talk about immunization and it was a multidisciplinary group that had scholars in English, people that are experts in language for example, some literary scholars, historians, but also public health, um, researchers and practitioners, uh, epidemiologists and so on. And so we would meet. Um, And the conversations became quite circular because um, the scientists on this panel Kept insisting that we what we needed is more and better information. That if we gave people better facts, they would simply decide to immunize their kids, and it would be game over. Um, so we had discussions about maybe we should have more pictures of sad children um, that would, con- you know, convince parents to vaccinate their kids. Um, and there was really no acknowledgement of the actual experts in the room who were yeah. expert in helping change people's minds, helping understand why people make the decisions that they make, because you really have to understand the decisions that people make before you can intervene. And so um, in that group, um, not to call out that one group, it was a pleasure in lots of ways, but it was just really challenging because um, there was an assumption that if you understand vaccines, vaccine science, that you understand how to make people get vaccinated. And those two things, they're, they're they're not actually that closely related because it that's, that position is based on the fundamental assumption that people um, value science as much as you do. And for a lot of people, science is one of many factors they consider when they make decisions about their health.
0: I'm, I'm glad to get into this discussion. I was actually talking with Travis Chi-Wing Lao who's a professor of mm-hmm. English at Kenyon College earlier this week. And, and it was a mind expanding conversation he's so brilliant and but he was ta- he wrote an essay during the pandemic called against the hot take and it mm-hmm. gets into some of this area that you're talking about and you know scientists who th- who appear public health researchers epidemiologists across the board people who have some expertise related to the pandemic who appear on twitter and they have the blue check and th- a lot of them have really big you know followings and they're also human beings so They may want to it's I think it's really hard for them. I've tried to observe this. There's areas that's obviously their lane, and they're gonna talk about um, you know, clinical trials or they're gonna talk about, you know, infection rates, whatever it is they're gonna talk about. But of course, as a human being, they're speculating about many other things that are related to the pandemic. And then they might also want to talk about sports, or they might want to talk about the weather. I mean, there's other things that they may want to weigh in on because Social media doesn't tell you you have to stay in your lane. This is not a peer-reviewed tweet, although maybe maybe that should come about. I don't know. Maybe we should talk about that. But, um, but I thought that was interesting that he was making that, that point. And, and it seems like you're, you're attentive to that concern, too, and trying to be sympathetic mm-hmm. to, I mean, I want scientists in this public communication space. But I, what I don't mm-hmm. want is that to come at the expense of other kinds of experts, social scientists and humanists who might actually have a much more important role to play around certain parts of the pandemic and communication, and it gets it gets smashed. And that seems to be kind of what you're describing in that interesting case you were relating.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's so much interesting stuff in what you just said, and I can't, you know, I, I won't be able to address it all, I'm sure. Um, but I think that, First of all, I'm not a social media expert, um, so there's one of those limits. Uh, you know, I'm a communication specialist, but but social media isn't my bag. But um, th- the thing is, is that, you know, we are all multifaceted individuals, right? With with all of our interests. Um, and Twitter, academics on Twitter, researchers on Twitter is really interesting. I mean, anyone on Twitter, it's really interesting because sometimes we tweet in a professional capacity, sometimes we don't, and it really depends um, on, like for me, my Twitter account is a bit of a hot mess in some ways, right? So I will, you know, I'll say something and it will go semi-viral. It'll be like a, you know, a thread about academia and then I'll get a ton of new academic followers. And then the next day I go, I'll go on a tear about public health communication and then I'll get a different set of followers and and then the next day I'll tweet something really stupid about snowboarding or something or yesterday I was tweeting about Ren and Stimpy, right? And I think that
0: I liked that, by the way. Keep going.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm not going to do it in the end. The question was whether I should quote Ren and Stimpy in in my new book or not, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to act like a grown up. Um, But we're always kind of occupying these different selves simultaneously. And the thing about being the blue check presence on Twitter is that the blue check is like a kind of almost like an imprimatur, right? Like it's a stamp of approval. It's, it's, it's saying that this is a person who is a public figure and we're acknowledging that this, you know, genuinely is them, but it comes with a kind of a rhetorical weight to it, right? It, it, it has a significance that circulates. And I think that that's something that individual Twitter users, I think we need to be mindful of that those with blue checks, you know, it comes with an, I think, an obligation um, to sort of your constituencies when you tweet from under a a blue check, it's not the same as, you know, being like, you know, I don't know, red cat one, two, three, underscore 49 on Twitter. Right. Like it's right. it, It comes with, there's a social weight to that that I think is really significant. And, um, know this is something I've thought about as I've you know moved up in followers myself I'm not anywhere near blue check territory at all um but you know I I do think a little bit more about what I say um because there is that kind of there's also a question of audience that's the other thing is that um social media kind of throws communication into a a very interesting sort of blender um because audience, when we think about communication, audience is always one of the most important things, right? It's not just what we say um, or how we say it, but who do we say it to? Who we are, who are we addressing? Because who we're addressing will change what we say and how we say it. And social media is interesting for that reason because you have many different types of audiences. So it's not just a reader of a peer reviewed journal or a person at a conference, um, presentation, for example, it's kind of just anyone who's around and sees it, and so so there's lots of really interesting stuff to unpack there, Um, and I have some colleagues who have done some work about uh, work on looking, for example, at um, epi Twitter, as it's known, you know, Mm -hmm. Twitter among epidemiologists, a a colleague of mine, um, Scott Graham, who published a book, I think earlier this year, later last year, called "Where's the Rhetoric?" And one of the things he talks about there is sort of the rise of ep- Epi Twitter or Epidemiological Twitter, and the um, I'm trying to remember what he calls it now, uh, but it's a certain type of tweet that that packs in a lot of data. So you're seeing these kind of daily updates of how many cases mm-hmm. there are, how many people are in mm-hmm. hospital. I'm sure you know this. I wish I could remember the name of the of the the, the type of tweet he he called it, um, but Um, Colleagues like that are trying to kind of understand, you know, how does this relatively new way of communicating scientific knowledge sort of stabilize into kind of more recognizable forms, you know, over time? And it will be interesting to see how those kinds of tweets sediment um, sort of as we move maybe out of the pandemic, hopefully out of the pandemic. Um, I circled around there. I forgot where I started.
0: no, that's good, and I and 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 it does um, get right back into this sort of question about epistemic humility too. I think, and um, I don't know if you follow Peter Hotez on uh, Twitter. People might have seen him a lot on cable news. Also, he's um, and. Um, or, you know, right-wing smear campaign. And he actually engages it. So if someone says, hey, you're going on TV and lying to the public, or people, you know, comment on his, his tweets, one of the most common ones is, you're paid off by the vaccine industry. And he, he engages them. Not every single one of them. But it's really, I've been fascinated to what, and it must be enormously time-consuming for him, right? so he, But he he takes the time to do it. And I I think his idea there is twofold. One is that not everybody who criticizes a public science official is that invested in their own criticism. And so maybe, you know, a response in good faith could get some percentage of people to back away or to say, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Sorry, I called you a bad name and and I'm going to learn from this experience. But also just that everyone else is watching. And so, when scientists do back down or sort of censor themselves in the beginning, just say, well, I'm not going into Twitter because it's just too dangerous out there. Um, there's an opportunity for communication that's missed as well. And, you know, I, again, I don't know when he sleeps because he spends a lot of time kind of engaging in that work, which is, but he sees that as I believe, I don't want to put words in his mouth, he's been a guest on COVID calls, but I think he sees that now as part of the spectrum of appropriate activities for scientists. Mm-hmm. That that's part of the science. I'm fascinated by that. I wonder what you may think about that.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that... one of, one of the central arguments in bounding bio, biomedicine, particularly toward the latter end, is that um, the realm of what we consider science is actually much broader than I think we traditionally believe. So when we think about what science is, we usually think about scientists at benches doing stuff, you know, with like Bunsen burners or whatever, cool like bubbling beakers and um, or in peer-reviewed research. But um, science is practiced at, um, uh, in really a broad, um, array of activities, everything from bench science, all the way out to, um, public, um, like public science and public scientists. And so, um, scientists who read other scientists, you know, like armchair nonfiction books, right. And, and how science circulates in public. And I think that that is something that, um, I think science on Twitter um, is really exciting. Um, I think that there's, you know, I think that that we need to think a little bit about kind of public responsibility. But I think um, I think having access to science and scientists in all of their kind of full-bodied experience and existence is actually really good for the public. I think because um, you know, in the realm of research that I inhabit, um, so alternative medicine I had been working on, and now I've moved into the realm of wellness, which is still in the realm of natural health, Um, there's kind of a skepticism and concern about science and scientists. And so I think that there's um, value in watching how scientists sort of make up and change their minds, how they communicate, how they engage. Um, And I think that there's um, increasing, you know, understanding of for example, peer review processes um, that, you know, like, I'll just hear people like, you know, in the park, if I'm walking through a park, and I'll hear people talking about, well, I heard there was a new preprint today, that blah, blah, blah. And they've heard about it in the news, they've heard about it on Twitter. Um, and, and there's this increasing understanding of what that means. Now, I want to say just as a sidebar, that um, I don't mean to suggest that there ever was a public deficit of scientific knowledge, and that people just didn't know enough about science. I think it's much more complicated than that. So I'm not saying that that people were just ignorant, and now they're less ignorant. Um, I think, actually, the engagement of scientists on Twitter is actually, um, I'm trying to think of this, it's a good way of kind of bridging sort of the gap, if you want to call it a gap, or the distance in expertise between members of the public and science, instead of expecting the public to build the bridge out to understand science, it's almost scientists are yeah. building the bridge the other way. And I think that that's really exciting. Um, and I think seeing, so, and I'm using the word scientist really broadly here to refer for sure. to anyone from public health to, you know, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Watching them change their minds and engage with people, I think, um, has been really good and also to be persistently reminded by um, people who reply about sort of the human and public element of the things that they're discussing. Like I think that that, you know, there is that kind of built-in feedback loop um, that I think is important because it's easy to lose sight of, you know, the people who are affected by or the stakeholders of your research.
0: Talking to Colleen Durketch today on COVID Calls about the rhetoric of science and I just, I, uh, <laughs> I love the image of of you walking past a, a dog park or anywhere eavesdropping for science communicate the way that people communicate about science. That's again, the sort of the blurring of the, the lived experience of a human in the pandemic and the researcher, which I've talked to lots of other people about that sort of uncanny nature of being a, a disa- what I call a disaster researcher generally, um, who's also living, living through this. Um, a couple other things I'd like to get to, if you have time, I definitely want to find out about the new book. And so maybe let's, because you, you referenced it a couple times about the concept of wellness. Tell us about the new project and, and how, again, starting a new project while the biggest pandemic in the last hundred years is unfolding, how does that take you out of your, what does that do to your research notes that you had <laughs> on the table before February, 2020?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I'll start just kind of with the sort of outline of it. So uh, it's called uh, Why Wellness Sells. Um, natural health in a pharmaceutical culture. I think that's what it's called. Um, and so it's under contract with Johns Hopkins um, and it is, um, it's under advanced contract, sorry. So it still is going out for peer review. Um, I just finished the final draft or the first draft uh, like last week. And so I'm just kind of finishing things up before I send it out, before it goes for review. Um, and it's interesting so that you just talk went back to sort of the study of disaster in general. And in fact, sort of Kind of the guiding theoretical idea behind um, why wellness sells. So, kind of the thing that's informing my methodology actually comes from disaster preparedness. So, there's kind of an interesting connection there. Um, so, I'm interested in, in discourses about wellness, and I. I there's lots of evidence now that the idea of wellness sells, right? We, we get it, right? There's Netflix shows debunking different wellness trends. There's exposés about Gwyneth Paltrow out there. There's um, Barbara Ehrenreich has a, a fairly recent book about um, debunking the aging and wellness industry. So we now know that wellness sells, um, but we don't really know why. And so the goal of my project is to explain why wellness sells. And what I argue is that... The language of wellness is a self-generating language or um, in fancy terms, it's an autopoietic language. And I take the idea of autopoiesis from a colleague of mine, Lisa Karenan, who is at the University of Denver or Colorado Denver. Um, and she um, published about um, rhetorics of disaster preparedness and how in the realm of disaster preparedness, As we talk about disasters and prepare for disasters, our idea of risk becomes elevated. And as our idea of risk becomes elevated, we prepare more. For disaster, So there's this kind of circular motion. Um, and um, so she called this discourse autopoietic, which means self-generating. Um, it's a term that comes from um, cell biology. Um, so cell, how cells can be self-generating units. And so I pick up on her idea of um, rhetorical autopoiesis or how arguments self-generate um, to make the case that wellness sells because it is essentially a self-generating discursive system or a self-generating language. Um, And so in the book, I explain that um, when we talk about wellness, we're always moving. And when I say we, I mean, you know, collectively, you know, those of us who live um, in Canada and the US for sure and in many other parts of the world, when we talk about wellness, we typically draw on two, one of two logics. Um, We draw on what I call the logic of restoration, which is the idea of restoring our bodies to Previous states of functioning um, and the logic of enhancement, which is about optimizing our bodies to become um, better than well, as uh, the bioethicist Carl Elliott once said. And so, the logic of restoration, um, when we're thinking about wellness in that logic, we're thinking about, you know, I'm going to take supplements to, um, you know, I've had insomnia. I'm going to take some supplements so that I sleep better so that I can get back to the way I was, right? Um, whereas the logic of optimization or enhancement is, you know, I, I've been sleeping fine, but maybe I can sleep even better, right? Or maybe I can even be more productive or have better concentration or be more energetic. And so, what I've found um, in various um, data sets that I've analyzed so, I conducted 40 interviews with um, people who are interested in wellness and natural health. I've analyzed um, online comments on petitions about Canadian legislation about natural health products um, and other cultural sources. And what I found is that we move quite seamlessly between these two logics, the logics of restoration and enhancement. And what I found is that the tension between these two logics actually drives interest in wellness discourse um, because we just slip easily between one or the other. Um, so I examined um, wellness um, across what I call, actually, it's really funny. So I I analyze wellness as it moves through or is driven by six vectors. And it's funny that I called it vectors because this was a a year before the pandemic when I came up with this idea. And now, you know, we all kind of broadly understand what vectors are, Right, right. um, right? So drivers of, you know, contagion. And so it's funny that I picked that metaphor as kind of the organizing metaphor for my book. So in six chapters, I track track what I see as the six vectors driving wellness discourse, where wellness is a form of incipient illness or a kind of, you know, illness in waiting. It's something we have to monitor and maintain um, rather than just leave it be, but we have to like track it like an illness Mm -hmm. Um, wellness as a form of self management, you know, governing ourselves, being good health citizens. and then a way of reducing harms of sort of everyday toxic life. Um, and then I, I look at several other vectors besides um, to try to just explain why is wellness so prominent.
0: And so that's, so that sounds like an amazing project. And how has the pandemic, mm-hmm. if it has, um, have you gone back and looked at the data set mm-hmm. somehow differently? Has it, has it changed your analysis at all? Or maybe it's, it's brought, accentuated certain parts of it that you hadn't, thought were as important before. That's certainly been the case, I think, for so many researchers. It didn't change their trajectory, but there are certain parts of it that are now really, really strongly demonstrated, like this issue you were talking about, about the way disaster preparedness works, for example.
1: I'm very happy to report that it holds, uh, that my argument holds and and is, is reinforced. Um, right now, I'm having a debate with myself about how much to discuss the pandemic in the book, um, because there's going to be an awful lot of books about COVID in the near future. Um, And I think this is about something that kind of, you know, precedes and will outlast um, the pandemic. So I'm just kind of thinking about that right now. And I wrote four of the six chapters before the pandemic. So I'm thinking, you know, how do I how do I fold that in? Um, but really it reinforced my arguments. And so it really reinforced um, the arguments I make about how deeply concerned people are about the kinds of harms that surround us in everyday life, um, whether it is toxins in the environment, whether it's chemicals and pharmaceuticals, or whether it's a virus moving through populations. Um, and I think one of the, I think that the thing that really sticks out for me the most is the fourth chapter is about wellness as, um, wellness as a survival strategy, I call it. And what I mean by a survival strategy, that chapter really, the key word of that chapter is exhaustion. And I'm drawing from um, sort of the, the, the great literary and cultural theorist, Lauren Berlant, and she talks about Um, exhaustion um, and ways people try to recover from exhaustion. And so in that chapter, I talk about how wellness becomes a way for people to carve out spaces for bodily pleasure or bodily respite. in lives that are really overburdened. Um, And so wellness can become kind of a way of feeling like, you know, you're filling up your cup, um, you know, by saying like, I'm going to, I, I, one of the things I talk about is rescue remedy, which is a, a natural remedy for stress that's made of various botanicals. And, you know, does it work? Who knows? Um, but it's sold as as something that's a kind of an instant relief that you can take if you're experiencing stress. You can just you know pop one of the um, pastilles, or you can drop a couple drops from a dropper on, on your tongue, and you'll just you know chill. And um, products such as this are kind of targets for, of a lot of you know cultural criticism, uh, you know, for being snake oil, etc. But I think that one of the things products like this do is help us feel like we're just able to take care of ourselves for five minutes. Um, And this is something that I've really noticed as institutions over the last year made a lot of noise about wanting to support employees, for example, wanting to support students. Um, But yet many of the workload expectations have carried on. Um, They've remained largely the same. And yet, you know, we've got kids running around our houses. We're in, you know, the domestic and professional, domestic and professional spheres really have collided in these ways that are really tricky and um, you know, not to slam my own institution, because I think this is happening everywhere, but you know, then we'd get, you know, sort of mass emails saying like, don't forget to have a bubble bath because these are stressful times, um, you know, without any of the institutional protections that are there um, to help workers, um, you know, get through this period, this difficult period. And so that chapter I think resonated the most for me um, kind of coming out of this end of the pandemic is that, you know, we are exhausted, I think, collectively. And and for some of us, our burdens are much greater than others. Um, and so this kind of really radically individualized uh, approach to um, wellness, um, I think, can potentially be quite harmful. But certainly, it's, it's understandable why people are drawn to that. Um, because you don't really have any other potential outlets for trying to recuperate from the stresses of everyday life.
0: I mean, it's really profound observation. And I remember even before the pandemic, you know, it's like uh, uh, back rubs for department heads, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's sort of moving around, you know, different ways that people under great stress at an institution, let's say a university, cope with your individual stress through these wellness techniques. And of course, you know, my thought was always, well, maybe just reduce the workload. I mean, maybe this is not an individual, this is a problem that manifests itself individually, but it's structural. And so And that sort of I know that's something you think a lot about, too, this sort of back into the sort of broader public health conversation, Mm -hmm. like focusing on the individual's behavior when, yeah, that's important. But there's a limit to what an individual Mm -hmm. can or can't do in terms of stopping the pandemic by wearing a mask. I mean, you want them to wear it, but I don't know how to resolve that tension. I'll leave that there.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's a big problem, right? And that's, I mean, that's one of the sort of the central arguments in my book. Like, I have unlimited patience, really, well, mostly unlimited patience for people who engage in health practices that, you know, may not seem supported or are not supported by scientific evidence. It doesn't mean I endorse the practices, but it means that I understand where people are coming from, because I think you're absolutely right. People are trying to find solutions wherever they can find them, right? It's kind of like the idea of puppy rooms on campus, uh, university campuses during exam time um, to try to. To alleviate you know stress and you know prevent suicide um, among university students and puppies are wonderful but that's not going to fix the problems that are are at play and I think that that's you know a core a core argument um, through the book I'm I'm just finishing right now is that um, until we address those bigger issues you know we're not really going to get anywhere in in stemming um, the tide of people that are seeking, you know, different health practices that, you know, may have no um, evidence supporting their practice, but it's, it's you know, people trying to do something that, that they have any agency over. Um, and so we need to look at what are those problems? What are people concerned about? And this circles back into the same questions we discussed already about vaccines, right? You need to understand why people are concerned about vaccines, um, really, if you want to address, um, issues of vaccine hesitance.
0: So uh, uh, probably I've, I've kept you too long. I mean, People should follow you on Twitter because uh, you do go into some of these issues also in that space. I think you're a, a, a good, uh, I don't know what the right term is, maybe it's <laughs> sort of a science rhetoric communicator. And you... Um, you know, I've learned a lot by following you and I think in, in this discussion as well and we look forward to that to that project coming out with Hopkins Press and you said it should be maybe later this year, sounds like.
1: Um, yeah, it's going in for peer review and then you know, however scholarly publication works out maybe next spring. We'll see. <laughs> to okay And it's
0: gonna it's gonna be and you said it's not it's not necessarily about the pandemic and the argument still holds. this is gonna be a strange, selling point for authors throughout this time who are going mm-hmm. to say, this is a book not about COVID. <laughs> yeah. I'm losing my audio and video today intermittently. Yeah. And so I want to thank my guest, Colleen catch for putting up with that <laughs> and I um, want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Join us back next week. Join me on Monday, actually, when Felicia Henry will be guest hosting again, and she guest hosted for the first time this week. It was a tremendous conversation. So please do join COVID calls on Monday at 5.30 Eastern time for that. And let me again thank Colleen for, catch for this time um, and for really touching on so many really interesting topics today. Thanks, Colleen.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday at 5.30.